listening to The Good Fight, where campus meets Christ. Hello, hello, hello. Greetings. We are back with another dive into The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm Timothy Kinnaman, a host for The Good Fight. And I'm Tina Liu, also a host for The Good Fight. And I am Grace Lita Gonzalez. Would you guess it? Another host for The Good Fight. And I'm Didi Moffitt, another host for The Good Fight. All right. Almost a full crew again, but uh, we're down a couple of members. So um, let's just kick things off with another summary from Tina. Okay, so this week we'll be discussing chapters 11 to 14. And these four chapters are really just a roller, co- roller coaster. So first off, we know that Aslan is near and spring is coming. But then the kid, and then the kids find Aslan. But then the white, uh, the white witch attacks with a wolf, and Susan is almost dying. But Peter comes out with his sword and saves Susan and kills the wolf, and that is Peter's first battle. But the white witch still has Edmund, so Aslan sends out a rescue crew, and they rescue Edmund. But the white witch says, "Since the dawn of time, due to deep magic, I have a right over Edmund because he betrayed everyone, and I get a hold over him." And Lucy and Susan turned to Aslan and asked, Aslan, you won't let the witch take Edmund, won't you? Aslan says, I'll work something out. And Aslan goes, talks to the witch, and they strike up some deal, but no one knows because only they were in the room where it happened. But something works out. And apparently Edmund gets to stay with the children, but no one knows what's happening, and Aslan is very sad, and Lucy and Susan stalk Aslan in the night, and they realize that Aslan is going to the white witch, and the white witch is probably going to kill him. That is all. Intense. I know. I, I felt my heart pumping there that was a very active and engaging summary i think very upbeat indeed um so let's start off by catching up we uh we didn't have a chance to discuss chapter 11 last week uh because we were so excited with what we read in the other chapters so chapter 11 right we see spring coming and uh very literary question again because it's a book after all what what does the spring represent? You know, what what is this imagery giving us a picture of? Well, spring is what happens after winter, and literally it is when everything starts coming back to life. We see grass growing again, trees, flowers, and along with everything being alive, the general atmosphere also changes from uh one of devastation into one of joy and that's what we saw when all the animals were having their little party in the woods yeah i was also gonna say rebirth similar to what you said tina but also that feeling of rain after like a long period of drought i feel like it's just like that excitement relief mixed with disbelief and just like joy yeah yeah i think it also um well obviously very visibly speaks to the power of the white witch breaking Mm -hmm. um and it's in such a almost like joyous manner i think for all of us who've grown up in places where there are winters um Mm. when spring comes it's ridiculously exciting except for tim (laughs) okay except for tim i like the winter okay i like the cold weather but I always say the best pair of seasons is winter and spring. Because mm. as much as I love the winter, like even I enjoy, like I just love the, I mean, the reawakening as, as Tina, you said. Um, and actually story, this winter into spring was the first time that I paid attention every day, every week 
to the buds growing on all the trees. Wow. And just seeing that life begin from, from just the barest little prickle on the branches of the trees or of the bushes. And then it takes weeks and weeks, but finally it's just green. And you, you ask yourself, when did that get there? I know. And it's just so beautiful. <laughs> it, it seems like you spent a lot of time thinking about that imagery. <laughs> I did. I did. I mean, I spent weeks because I looked every day. So that's my story about spring. And also I have a nice plant that I put in my dorm. And when uh, the months got warmer during March and April, it just started growing new leaves. And every day there would be a new leaf. And I would be like, where did that come from? So how do we tie that to the Christian walk? I think it, well, I think very directly speaks to the breaking of the hold of like sin in your life. Um, with like the white witch having the power to make it always, always winter and never Christmas. Um, and this idea of like this, the magical like hold on people, right? Um, and the spring is like the, the lessening of that burden. I really like that phrasing, just breaking up the hold, because at the end of the chapter, uh, the dwarf says, this is no thaw. This is spring. Mm. And there seems to be a distinction between the thawing of ice in winter, which is temporary, and spring coming, mm. which is, quote, yes. your winter has been destroyed. Wow. Unquote. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good way of putting it. I mean, it reminds me even of a very common term, which is it's born again, right? Hmm. This idea that, I mean, we have the idea in in Jesus's life of rebirth, and we'll get to that uh, next week, I think. But um, in our own walks, we have the idea of, of rebirth out of sin, right? As Grace Lita put it, the breaking of that hold. So I, I think, yeah, that... It's a good picture too, right? Coming out of the the winter, but never Christmas. Um, and then we saw Father Christmas last week, and now it's actually spring. So, my really quick comment is that I would like to say that spring never comes that soon after Christmas. Like Christmas isn't like in the middle of winter. Christmas always happens like before deep winter. That's true. Yeah. Deep winter happens after Christmas. So I would just like to make a uh, technical note there. I get the point. I think it's good imagery, but I do think it's funny because I wish winter ended after Christmas. Mm. That would be nice. Um. So I was going to ask, what does being born again mean to you guys? Because some people say it's like, oh, when you sort of accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, so the altar call, and then intentionally seek to live um, according or to live following the example of Christ. Um, but then some people say it's obviously the baptism because Jesus says, oh, to be born again is, you know, the first time from your mother's womb and the second time by water. But then what happens if you do this and then you backslide? Do you still say you were born again at that point or do you have to sort of like recommit and then that becomes when you were born again? What does that like mean to you guys or what do you think about that? This is actually a really deep question. I remember debating this with friends freshman year and we spent hours talking about this. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing I would, I would say is it's not just born again of the water, right? It's born again of the water and of the spirit. 
Um, so I think I would just throw that in as a first comment. Mm-hmm. So, right, it, you know, there is the baptism, and there's a, a whole question of what that means. But there also has to be this element of the spirit, the spiritual birth. I mean, I definitely wouldn't say that, um, like, I th- this is my theological stance, but I don't think you can be born again more than once. Right. Yeah. Um, but that is obviously like, a, a, I don't know, maybe doctrinal stance would be a more accurate um, representation where, yeah, I don't think, I think that you're, if you use the lingo born again, you are born again once. Um, because obviously like all, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean you are free from sin. Um, it means you are no longer a slave to sin, but you can, you will still sin. You are still a sinner. Um, or you're still sinful, I guess maybe would be a better way of putting it because you are made new in Christ. (laughs) Um, yeah, but to answer that second half, I don't think you can be born again more than once. Uh, but that's also, that is obviously a very clear doctrinal stance. Um, obviously, some traditions believe, like Christian traditions believe that you can lose your salvation and others believe that you can't. Um, and so obviously based on that divide, it's probably a little bit too much to go into here. But mm. that that probably falls under that category as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, a typical Reformed tradition would say you can only be born again once. And a typical Arminian position, uh, very generalizations here, like huge generalizations, but the typical Arminian position would be, you can be born again more than once. Um, so, I mean, it is a question that, that individuals should well, ask themselves. Well, I mean, they, give or they, take. A lot of Arminians would say that you just were never saved to begin with. Yeah, right. That's I was going to say, yeah. I was going to say following that, it might be that if you don't have that spiritual um, birth, like you said, Tim, maybe it's that you didn't actually like you didn't actually fully seek to be like christ and so right. backsliding is like made like maybe you weren't born ag- like fully born again i would mm-hmm. say so maybe yeah that's that's typically what is said in i think i mean in a lot of traditions that's that's what they would say is mm-hmm. if you if you do have that kind of major backslide to that degree then you were never actually born again born of the spirit interesting yeah i love theology but (laughs) let's get back to our book here so that's all i wanted to talk about in chapter 11 um and that continues in chapter 12 i think there's actually even more imagery of spring in 12 than there was in 11 you see the thawing side in 11 and you get the the reawakening in 12 but what i wanted to talk about in chapter 12 was my man peter and what seems to be his faint-heartedness. So what do people think about how Peter reacts in chapter 12? First, we see um, when they first encounter Aslan and his attempts to like put off not being the one to go to Aslan first. And then second, when he saves Susan from the, uh, the wolf... And the line is, Peter did not feel very brave. Indeed, he felt he was going to be sick, but that made no difference to what he had to do. I love that line. Yeah. I don't know if I would agree that he's faint hearted. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I would say he's the opposite, right? Doing something that he's scared of. 
it's like it's not bad like it's not wrong to be scared it's not wrong to be uncertain i think all of those feelings are like because none of them were wrong like unlike edmund and edmund's reaction to aslan's presence what we like the first reaction we see um by peter is that they're uncertain of him like they don't know i think it has to do with like they're like to a certain extent probably the awe and reverence of who he is right of not knowing how to act or behave in i would say such majesty and so um like i think there's one there's one quote where it's like uh, people who have not been in narnia sometimes think that the thing cannot be so cannot be good and terrible at the same time if the children ever thought so they were cured of it now for when they tried to look at aslan's face they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes and then they found they couldn't look at him and went on went all trembly right i think like his reaction speaks to the majesty of who aslan is mm-hmm. and so i would say he's the opposite of faint of heart because he is Although obviously he does push back a little bit, right? He's he's displaying his fearfulness, but ultimately, what does he do? He gets up and he goes first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the line says, "What?" Um, then at last, Peter realized it was up to him. He drew his sword and raised it to the salute, and hast- and hastily saying to the others, "Come on, pull yourselves together," he advanced to the line and said, "We have come, Aslan." Right? That's like not faint of heart at all. Right, and I think I think you see that especially in in the other line I read. It, it made no difference how he felt about it. He knew what he had to do, mm-hmm. and he right. he goes and does it. Yeah, I think faint-hearted would be to know that it is one's duty and to not do it anyway. And this was foreshadowed uh, before, right? When Father Christmas was giving out presents, he was the one given a sword and told to fight. So it's. Like he was meant to be the first one, to be the protector and the leader. Right. We did talk about that last week. Um, just adding on to our um, literary evidence here about their reaction to Aslan. Uh, I do want to talk about this line as well. It's just above where Peter goes out and meets Aslan. He, Lewis writes, people who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, and then this is what Grace Lee read before. I read all of it. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. Shows how much I'm paying attention. But yeah, I mean, let's just dive in. Good and terrible. What, what does that mean? And how do we think of God as good and terrible? I would say, I don't know if anyone has ever experienced this, but you know, sometimes when you're very aware of like, oh, the presence of God or something, and you obviously know it's beautiful and you want to be there, but somehow you're scared. And then my mind always goes to like, you know, the scriptures where it's like, you know, the angels, whenever they appear, or particularly when they appear to Mary, and the first thing is like, do not be afraid. And then I always wonder, it's like, why are we so scared when it's like, obviously we pray and it's like, anyone's ideal when you're praying is obviously you want to see god you want to see jesus you want to see angels you want to be um not just like you know feel the presence but possibly see things you know but it's like why are we so scared of that reality i don't know i mean i think it goes back to what we read in scripture right the fear of the lord Mm. um right that that there is kind of this awe that is not necessarily 
just a love, but it is kind of a recognition of the absolute power that God has and um, our absolute finitude next to him. And just the recognition of the great distance that exists there. And I think there is a fear, right, of how awesome and mighty God is in that respect. Yeah, I think it also speaks to, like, I don't know, there's this, I mean, C.S. Lewis is obviously limited in his vocabulary, right? Because he's writing to what is probably like middle school aged readers, mm-hmm. maybe even younger. If you're... Well, I noticed some words in our reading this week that I had no idea what they were. Oh, but I think some of that's probably also time period, right? That yeah, like and, more... and culture, right? English man yeah. instead of a, an American. But... Um, so the he used good and terrible right because they're like pretty simple words um i think it's interesting he used the word terrible and not bad right mm. um because you and obviously especially not evil if he said evil that just be like the- theologically inaccurate um and bad would also borderline theol. i think it, well i think people would probably clearly say it's theologically inaccurate but maybe you could make a bit of a case in that mm. case um although technically the garden of eden is the garden of of good and bad, not good and evil. I mean, depending on translation. So there's a whole debate on that realm, which is interesting as well. Um, anyway, but all that to say, like the use of the word terrible, I think is really neat. Um, cause I think it really speaks to who we are in comparison to God. Uh, it reminds me of like all the Bible verses that talk about not being able to see the face of God. Mm. Right. And, um, one of the things that always stood out to me with those verses is the idea of like god being so good that the evil in us cannot survive his presence Mm. um and that speaks to almost the terribleness about him like the terribleness of him to sin right like he is so good to the point that he is terrible at this like at the same time um and i think that that reminds me also of this idea of like God's wrath um, where like God's wrath is good and um, it is terrible. Like it is terrible wrath. Wrath is terrible to put it in plain language. Um, you could also say wondrous, mighty, just, etc. But if you're a sinner, it's terrible. And so I think there is this like juxtaposition of his goodness being so good that it's terrible to sin is the etymology of terrible the same as terror i think so i terror terrifying i think they're all related but i don't know the root so i can't speak for certain i would imagine though yeah then it would be consistent with our re- relating the word terrible to our fear of god mm-hmm. And just to point out that terrible reappears just two pages down when the lion shook his mane and clapped his paws together, parentheses, terrible paws, thought Lucy, if he didn't know how to velvet them. I thought that was kind of I funny. Love, I ended up looking up like to velvet. I don't know if any of you did. Could so you explain like, it? Yeah. So to velvet is, let me just like make sure I'm writing this right, but it's basically to soften them. So like it, he, it means like to velvet something is because velvet's obviously soft. So it's mm. like to soften something. And so for him to velvet his paws is for him to like soften his paw, paws, which I thought was really interesting. 
um, because it's like how terrible, how terrifying they would be if they weren't. And I did Google really quickly the etymology of terrible, and it, it does come from the idea of so late middle the use of terrible in late middle English was used in the sense of causing terror, which is from French. Mm. It's via French from Latin. Oh my goodness, my Latin is not going to be good, but terribilis from oh, terribilis terribilis from ter terrer. Ter it's T-E-R-R-E-R-E. -R -R -E -R -E. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's probably terrera. Terrera. terrera, which is frightened. But it could be terrera. Terrera. So one of the above, which is frightened. So we're, yeah, so that's the same the same path of terror being terror. I was going to say, but then the transition to when they come to him and they feel so comfortable, it sort of reminds me of in the Bible, Moses from the burning bush to sort of relating to God on a daily basis. Mm. Um, yeah, I want to point that out. Right. The you have both aspects, the the fear and the love. And you very much see those coming together in these passages. And I love that. Anything else from, from anyone? Yeah, I really like this is can I jump to a different like back a page? Oh sure. It's at the end of them, like Aslan saying hi to them. Um, and it's when Aslan asks, but where is the fourth S Aslan? Mm. Which I thought was so interesting. The mark that I made is like, he clearly does know, but he acts like he doesn't. Um, and we know that he clearly knows, not necessarily in this moment, but later on when he's talking about the, uh, being able, like how when he's asked by, I believe it's Lucy and Susan on how to, or maybe just Lucy on like how to save Edmund. And he says that, um, Yes, but it will be harder than you think. Yeah. So he knows where Edmund is. He knows how to save him. He knows the cost. And yet he still asks, where's the fourth? And so I wanted to ask all of you what you think. Like, why do you think that he asked them where the fourth, fourth sibling was when he, he knew more than they did? You know, um, well, I would like to say, first of all, he knows there's a fourth. Right, we have no indication prior to this that he should know that there are four of them. So there's already a sense of of divine omniscience going on, and it reminds me of Jesus with the woman at the well. Right, where is your husband? Um, this question of I already know, but it's getting you to reflect on what I know. Um, and so that line that, that I think Peter says right afterwards, right, where he says, oh, he ran off to the witch or the, sorry, Mr. Beaver says he ran off to the witch, right? And yeah. Then yeah. Mr. Beaver says Peter, he has tried to betray them and join the white witch. Oh, Asla. And then Peter says something like, it was my fault. Mm -hmm. He says was it was angry. partially my fault. Right. So I think there, I think we might compare that to a sense of like, Aslan convicting of like this is something that you did wrong mm -hmm. and Peter recognizes it and confesses I see as yeah especially because Aslan said nothing either to excuse Peter or to blame him right. but merely stood looking at him with his great unchanging eyes but do you feel like that was misplaced guilt from Peter's end like I don't think he fully did anything to Edmund from my opinion of what we read but I don't know. It was subtle, but he was, I mean, there's one, the, well, not, not really that. So the only thing really is 
kind of the anger that he displayed at Edmund betraying Lucy, right? Because Edmund was like, when they first got into the into Narnia together, he was like, oh yeah, this is how I remember or whatever. And and then Peter turns on him and is like, bro, you just... He just pointed it out. He's just like... <laughs> no, there. I mean, there was definitely anger in the passage. I do remember that. I feel like this is why he said, I partially, like it was partially my fault. Because he says, I was angry with him and I think that helped him to go wrong. Mm. And so I think there's this idea of like, maybe his lack of gentleness in being upset because like the upsetness isn't wrong it isn't like i think i think we can all agree that peter was justified in being upset that edmund had been egging lucy on right and when he clearly had visited um but i think there was an element of like maybe a lack of gentleness in that and obviously that isn't to say that it was completely that it was like on peter which i think is why aslan Mm -hmm. said like why aslan did neither excuse nor blame because um, I think Peter had recognized what, like his whatever little role he had, and by not blaming him, it was saying that like no part of it was on Edmund, right? Edmund, like the entire section that we read about Edmund being like it's all Peter's fault, it's all Peter's fault. That was obviously also on Edmund, like his him getting riled up like that was also like it's not on Peter, it's on Edmund. But then Peter walked by Edmund and listened to him through everything. I don't I don't know if I remember that the specific part you're yeah, talking I'm about. Yeah, I'm not sure either. When Edmund was um telling Peter, Oh, like come by me, let me tell you certain things and basically was talking down the idea of Aslan and everything they were going towards, and Peter was just like by him and just sort of like taking in his doubt, basically. Um I wouldn't say he was portraying anger there, but I do get the overall message, I think, is that maybe he wasn't as open to Edmund, but yeah. Right, yeah, you're talking like when they're talking, following the bird. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, by then it had simmered down, but it was very much, I mean, it was one explosive I found a good quote. Um, So it's right after Peter finds out, um, and he says, Peter whistled. So you really were here, he said. That time Lou, Lou said she had met you in here and you made out she was telling lies. There was a de- dead silence. Well, of all the poisonous little beasts. Yeah, mm. beasts. Um, an insult more than um, like a just recompense. Tina, you haven't spoken in a while. What are you thinking? Um, I'm listening to the conversation. But I'm, okay, so on the topic of Peter... I'm also wondering if it's also higher expectations are set for Peter because we already discussed this, but he is expected to be the first one who approaches Aslan, to be the first one who fights the wolf. Is it just um, there are these higher standards for him to fulfill? Like he can be more gentle. He can be a better leader and a better guide to all of his younger siblings. That's an interesting question. Um, I hadn't considered that he had higher standards to fulfill for that. Um, but I did pick up on the um, the pretty direct reference to using Peter as the name of the, the leader of the group there. Oh, that's funny. I hadn't even... I didn't think that's of that. That's funny. That's funny. I know. I was so surprised. It took me until this week to realize Peter, 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 Peter. <laughs> Peter. 
Yes, Peter, as in that... Caiaphas, <laughs> Peter from the New Testament, the the leader of the apostles. Yeah, hot-headed Peter. Yeah. But what yeah. was he called? This was he this? No, he was. Never mind. I don't know what <laughs> Peter was called. Yeah. So Aslan takes Peter by himself, and they go to the care paravel and aslan says i show it to you because you are the firstborn and you will be the you, you will be high king over all the rest seems that he is going to be um he, he has higher standards to fulfill it reminds me um that was actually the, that was the passage that made me realize because it, it made me think of uh on this rock i will build my church which is a mm -hmm. it's actually a play on greek words because peter is like Petra. Yes, that's what I was trying to get at. He's a rock. Yeah. Petra. Petra. Rock, yeah. Which is Greek for rock. Oh. So, and I think that passage is also giving over the keys of the kingdom, which is a hotly debated scripture between Protestants and Catholics. Um, I highly recommend getting into that debate. Anyway, I love Peter. Oh, can I ask one more question? Go ahead, yeah. Um, so when he's pulled them pulled peter aside um i thought was really interesting is so the one i think the first thing aslan says or one of the yeah first thing he says without the uh, the sisters being there is come son of adam i will show you a far off site of the castle where you are to be king and the first thing that stood out to me was the difference between that and the white witch because they're both presenting the like uh, being a prince or being because obviously Edmund is going to be well. Actually, no. It's the four four kings and four queens. Actually, so Edmund was only offered princehood, and here um, Peter's being told he'll be king. And I was wondering if any of that, like, if you guys noticed that at all, the comparison. Yes, the comparison. Didn't notice the comparison, but looking back at the passage, it reminds me of the Lion King. Just all the light touches will one day be yours. Yes. But at the same time. Right, in The Lion King, there is the shadow part, which Simba is not supposed to go to. And I'm wondering if there's actually a parallel in this book, because the White Witch, in the next chapter, we learn that she has her own domain. And she has she has power over some things that Aslan doesn't. Hmm. Mm. That's an interesting question, bringing in the, the Disney movies now. <laughs> I, no, I definitely thought of that scene as well. Just like... Everything the light touches will be yours, Peter. <laughs> of course, that's not a line in the book, but I, I, I saw it. Like It could have been in there very easily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we're adding lines. <laughs> well, I guess then to jump back and answer my own question, um, the thing that stood out to me at least was the kinghood without attachments, um, where the way that the white witch presents Edmund being king, um, it's very much like, you need to bring your brothers and sisters, right? It's a manipulative, like there are conditions mm. in order for him to be king. Um, the same thing is that like, it's clearly ever like something she, or for her own benefits was like, she wants to raise him up. Um, and so it's one of those things where like, there are a lot of, there seems like there are a lot of conditions attached to his princehood, which is obviously what we see why he goes to the white witch, right? Because he desires that princehood. Um, and so he's trying to fulfill her desires on his own and like live up to the requirements that she's set versus when Aslan is offering kinghood 
um he doesn't like he doesn't it's not with conditions i actually Um, disagree i feel like with the white witch the one condition is bring back your siblings but the way the white witch portrays kinghood is as a king you will get all the turkish delights you want and you can do whatever to your siblings but over here with aslan and peter aslan is showing peter all the land and i think he is showing peter all the responsibility that he will have to take on it's very solemn and there's a lot of gravity when Aslan tells Peter, you will be high king over all the rest. But with Edmund, it's just, oh, you're king. That means you're going to be spoiled and you're get, you are you will get whatever you want. Right. But the latter one still doesn't have any conditions. Like it, it's he will be king even like. It, it's not like a you have to do something in order to be king. Aslan is making him king, telling him it will be hard. But then like foreshadowing that he will grow through the position instead of having to grow to get the position would you disagree with that interesting yeah that does make sense yeah i don't think either one is is really wrong there um one thing i did think about was the imagery of the two castles though right with uh with the witch's castle you get edmund who's like afraid to go up to it and it's cold and dark and dreary and then you have care paravel in the distance just like a like the, mm, a literal yeah. shining city on a hill. Like it's just a glorious sight. Um, and, you know, which one of those do you associate with kingship? Not a, not a hard question to answer. <laughs> well, then maybe to jump ahead real fast to the end of this chapter, um, so you can get to chapter 13 soon, is why do you think, like what do you think the symbolism is of um aslan saying and whatever happens never forget to wipe your sword like that's the ending of the chapter the same question there's so much emphasis on it i wanted to ask that question but i i just don't have an answer i don't have an answer either that's what i want to know i want y'all to tell me i read it and threw my arms up i don't know like i don't know if it has to do with honor or I, i just don't like it could just be like a witty line that lewis threw in there i'm wondering because I was very surprised that Peter just killed the wolf and he's a kid and people are not supposed to kill. Um, Even in all the superhero movies, you see the superheroes fighting the villains, but they try to avoid killing them at all costs because killing it's just so much weight on you taking a life. But Peter does it. So I'm wondering if wiping off the sword could be some honor to the, um, the villain. It's just you didn't kill out of your bloodthirst. Mm you killed mm-hmm. because you had to so you aren't supposed to be proud of it and show it off on your sword or anything mm, i think that i like that idea of humility and also preparation almost like for the next battle right where it's like wiping your sword off in preparation for the next one because i do think this is where we seem to have that very visible like idea of spiritual warfare but right. manifested in act physical warfare especially because we're Narnia. not we're not talking about human on human war here we're talking about peter killing a wolf right i was also going to say maybe also to keep his gift clean and pure because it's like when we use like the gifts god has given us in the world there's always still the emphasis in the bible about being able to preserve our own salvation and so i think it's just emphasizing like not staining that gift um in my opinion right like almost turning it not turning I mean, this goes back to humility, as you said, Grace Lee and, and Tina, right? Not turning the gift into an act of self-righteousness. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I like that. Chapter 13, 13 now. Yes. 
Um, I've been sitting on this for a long time, but that was a good conversation. I have one big question, and that's all I'll present. And then if you guys have other things, we can get there. This line um, about the deep magic. I shouldn't say this line, but these lines, right? So uh, Edmund is returned to the group. And uh, Tina, you summarized this very well, like half an hour ago in the summary. But um, I'm just going to read what the witch says. You have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund, but Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning. him. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. Well, said Aslan, his offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the deep magic, asked the witch. Let us say I have forgotten it, answered Aslan gravely. Tell us of this deep magic. Tell you, said the witch her voice growing suddenly shriller. Tell you what is written on that very table of stone which stands beside us. Tell you what is written in letters deep as a spear is long on the fire stones on the secret hill. Tell you what is engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey and that for every treachery, I have a right to a kill. So good. <laughs> what is going on here? Can I say my favorite part? Yes. My favorite part is that she's like implying that he's been there at the beginning. He's, she's like, bro, you are the one who was there when it was written. You at least know what happened at the beginning, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Trinity analogy there. The word <laughs> became flesh. Or in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Mm. Yeah, I like, like that line. <laughs> bam. But yeah, what what is going on here? What other things do we pull out of this? Espe- I'm like, especially with this deep magic that the witch is talking about. Like, what is that? The actual law that she cites. I feel like it would also make more sense if we could tie in what happens in the next chapter, but we're not there yet. Yeah unfortunately but fortunately because that'll be a great episode next week i think we can bring up just what grace alita previously said she mentioned the line a slave to sin and that's what's happening here the white witch says every traitor and for every treachery i have a right to kill it's just once you've sinned you're just a slave to the white witch she can do to you whatever she wants to do yeah, but beyond that, there's also this idea of like um, of ultimate justice, right? And the necessity for reparation of sins. I think it is interesting that in this case, um, or in what we see, like in the way that the, the witch presents it is as though the witch is in control, um, which I think is very noticeable, right? Um because she's like, they're mine. They're my law. Like, they're lawfully my prey. Um, and I don't really know how that fits into the gospel narrative. Um, because ultimately, it's, in this case, like, the emperor's justice or God's justice. Um, where we are becoming, like, Christ is taking on the penalty for our sins or Aslan is taking on the penalty of Edmund's sins. Um, 
but so that God will write them or like uh, give them a clean slate. And that's a bad way of phrasing it, but you get the gist where in this case, it's like the white witch is presenting herself almost as though she is the one who needs the penalty to be paid. And I'm just a little, I don't know. Yeah. I thought about the same thing when I read. Um, And the answer I seemed to come to was there's, it seems like Lewis is mixing for literary purposes, the ideas of sin and death. So at this point, it seems like the witch is taking on more of the death side of things that as, um, as punishment, right, as a traitor, Edmund deserves death. And so he belongs in that sense to death. Oh, I see. Not okay. necessarily to sin or to the devil, as we might say, with the mm-hmm. previous image that we were looking at with the witch. But now it's like a servant uh, to sin, and that's being a traitor, which is deserving of death. And so he is a he is in the control of death. Isn't that a verse or something? And, the wage of sin is death. Yes, the yes. wages of sin is death. But that was, that was the answer I came to, was that conflation of sin and death. I think that made sense. Sometimes we have answers. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just guess everywhere. Any, any other thoughts about chapter 13? There was one line I liked. Um, it was just right before what I just read. Um, when the... What are they? The... Um, Siblings get back together? No. Leopards. When two leopards go with the the dwarf back to the witch, and Peter says, it'll be all right. He wouldn't send them if it weren't. This idea, right? Mm. A, a very Genesis 49, I think, look of what you meant for evil, God meant for good, or Romans 8.28, or Jeremiah something something 11. 29 29 yes right the idea that that god is doing good and and he wouldn't it wouldn't happen if he weren't doing good through it trust yeah it's really cool how peter and the leopards have complete faith Mm. yeah i'm gonna jump up a little bit more to another line that i really liked which is um when they when the siblings do meet together and um, Aslan like is is reuniting Edmund with the others and said, "Here is your brother." He said, "And there is no need to talk to him about what is past." Mm. Um, we'll never know what they spoke about. Yeah, I just I like more than that though because it's also like all that it's saying that like all that Edmund did is in the past and that's where it belongs. And I think we really do see that literally. Like I know we mentioned this line late, like late or earlier on, um, but it's when like the witch says you have a traitor here aslan and everyone is like oh she's talking about edmund and then it says that but edmund had gone past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had this morning where we we see a very drastic like change in edmund's character which i think will only continue to see grow as he's now like as he's now out of his out of being under the control of sin um and so it's really cool to see how like we I think we like the siblings. It will be easy for us to um, 
continue to think of Edmund as kind of like that, the the child who went astray from the beginning. Um, and so what Aslan's saying is also like kind of a directive to us as well, that we too should know that Edmund has changed and Edmund has grown mm -hmm. from this and that his past is the past and that's where it should remain. Reminds oh. me, there is therefore now no condemnation. Exactly. Right? For those who are in Christ. Yeah. I also think not necessarily that we would still um, keep those things in mind because I feel like probably we had this conversation, Tim, with some other people, but like I feel like I didn't really like Edmund that much. Um, but as soon as like Aslan spoke those words or like sort of Edmund came back and it's like you just saw like the summer appearance or sort of like the change, I was just like, okay, I immediately, I think, forgot because I think underneath all the time I was just like, couldn't understand why this person was choosing bad all this time. And it's like when he finally came to, I guess, the right side or good, it was just happy. Like, I was just like, okay, this is like how it's supposed to be. So I feel like I wouldn't necessarily remember. Maybe if it was more personal, maybe. But I think, I think there is some aspect of us that can just forgive and forget sometimes. Yeah. What I found interesting is that after everyone forgave Edmund, uh, everyone wanted very hard to say something, which would make it quite clear that they were all friends with him again, something ordinary and natural. And of course, no one could think of anything in the world to say. Yeah. So I suppose the question is, when someone does come back from having sinned and people forgive him, how do you transition? Is there a way to transition or do you just sit in awkward silence until the awkwardness disappears? That is a great question, Tina. And I feel like that's what people fear the most. I think that's the hard part. They're like, what does it look like to be transformed and come back to where yeah. people knew I was not? Yeah. And just in that awkward silence, there is still the temptation to perhaps place blame or to, um, what's the word, utter the, the sinner. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. Condemn. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah. I also like the line where it says, Aslan frowned after they asked him if isn't there a way to sort of like um, not go by what the emperor's law said mm. and then Aslan frowned and then they just never spoke of it again it was kind of like I don't know like cute to me because it made me think of you know when people say stuff like oh you sin and all you have to do is just you know repent and give it all to God and just keep on walking in your determination to be like Christ I think that can be a hard concept to understand when it's like you love God so much and you really want to do right but it seems like like Paul would say, it's like, I, I do what, like, what I should, I don't, um, what I don't want to do, I do. And so I feel like there's that struggle, but to just see how this works. And it's like that sort of communion where it's like a simple frown or just like a loving, like, mm -mm, this is not the way can actually like, you know, work and yeah. can be. Well, that, that also speaks to Edmund, right? Because Edmund right afterwards, um, when they're talking like right after that line, um, it says that Edmund was on the other side of Aslan, looking all the time at Aslan's face. He felt a choking feeling and wondered if he ought to say something. But a moment later, he felt that he was not expected to do anything except to wait and do what he was told. Um, which I think is a really interesting way of like handling sin um, or like post sin in this case, where Edmund is is waiting for Aslan to do all the work right? It's not on him anymore. It's not something he can fix. And it's not something he's expected to like fix either. 
Um, I think this is one of those areas where we see a very clear, like faith, faith over works based salvation. Um, because it's very clear that nothing Edmund at this point, Edmund has done nothing to quote unquote work for his salvation. And this is a very clear line where it's like, that's because he's not supposed to and because he can't, Mm -hmm. but it's by the grace of Aslan that Edmund can rest content in his presence, knowing that Aslan will save him. And that's all we have time for this week. And that's a really good place to end it. We did not get to chapter 14. Um, I will leave off with one thing to think about, though. Uh, as I did a couple of weeks ago, I asked to spend some time comparing the... Um, the Turkish delight to the dinner they have with the beavers. This time, compare the three pictures we have of the creatures. So you have the first picture of the creatures that the um, uh, that gather around the witch with Edmund, and then you have the picture of the creatures that the other three meet when they first meet Aslan, and then you have the creatures around the stone table at the end of chapter 14. Um, So maybe spend some time comparing those three images and and what we can glean from those. We might talk about it next week, but um, we will be full of passion week next week. Uh, So we might not have time for that because next week is the last week of this book. Uh, How are we going to get through it all? there's a lot extended episode it might it might have to be (laughs) like uh oh we could have a part one part two season finale you know how it's always like twice as long yeah Uh, harry potter part one part two (laughs) well on that note if you don't already follow us on instagram or facebook you should go find us at the good fight pod and if you want to send us an email because that would make our day um send it to us at Witness the good fight at Columbia. Wait, what? At gmail.com. <laughs> out of practice. Over there. I am out of practice. This is what happens when other people start helping me out. Yes. I got to pass the duty on to someone else. We'll get it right. I call dibs on doing it next week. <laughs> Do it. Ooh, sounds good. And uh, until next week then, farewell. Bye. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.